Welcome to Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm Matthew Hawkins. Joining me at Leland House on Capitol Hill are two new friends, Vanessa and Elisa. They are here to tell their story about what it's like to be a dreamer in the United States and a DACA recipient at this point in American history. Vanessa, Elisa, welcome to Capital Conversations. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, thanks for working this out on your schedule right before you guys get on a flight home. Let's get into this uh, pretty quickly. I think listeners to the podcast understand the basic situation of dreamers, and uh, we've had we've talked about it in earlier episodes of this podcast. The basic uh, situation with dreamers is that you have been brought here by your parents mm-hmm. in an undocumented way, so uh, you're not a citizen of this country, uh, but you cross the border due to no action of your own. So you were not intentionally breaking the law, and you weren't yourself breaking the law, mm-hmm. and yet. In the United States of America, there is no legal mechanism for you to get, quote unquote, right or legal in in our nation. And that's what the RLC and many other allies have been working on for the past several months. Uh, A number of years ago, the Obama administration, for listeners, issued something called DACA, Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. It was an executive branch effort to provide a solution Many of us were concerned about uh, the appropriateness and longevity of such a solution. And uh, as it turns out, we were right to be concerned because it's temporary and now the clock is ticking. There's basically a March 5 deadline, uh, but the reality is um, the implementation of new laws, even if we were to have a solution by March 5, takes many weeks and many months to actually implement, uh, at which point on March 5th, DACA recipients begin losing daily uh, work permits. And that means people will be laid off um, because they're not legally permitted to work. Uh, that's some of the kind of predicament that dreamers find themselves in. And we wanted to get to know uh, Vanessa and Elisa, who have been on Capitol Hill this week telling their stories, and uh, want to get to know them a little better and uh, introduce them to our listeners. Vanessa, tell us where you grew up and uh, a little bit about your story. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for the introduction. Sure. Uh, so... Uh, my name is Vanessa Gutierrez, and I am originally from uh, Mexico in the uh, northern state of Nuevo León, in okay. the city of Monterrey. So I, uh, right now, my home has been in Holland, Michigan. So uh, my story is that uh, I came to the United States at the age of three mm-hmm. um, with my mom and my dad. We had family that um, had migrated to the U.S. and were starting a life. Um, Some family members were, you know, getting a career or opening like a, a, you know, a business in in the hair salon industry in Dallas, Texas. And we had other family members that were going to the state of Michigan to do uh, farm work um, in the agricultural industry. Yeah. So we, because of the family members and my parents being um, not getting, not having like a high school education or knowing the language, um, the path for them was to start working out in the farms. So they brought me to uh, West Michigan and uh, we began to live in um, these you know, really small uh, mobile homes and um, shared rooms, shared housing, um, all like, you know, for a good part of my early years, I obviously started attending school mm-hmm. and I became the 
the translator for the family at an early age um, at parent-teacher conferences or on the phone with customer service, you know, people. I was just the the one that, you know, had that my parents relied on. And I remember being a shy little girl and really disliking that role because <laughs> I did not want to speak to people. Um, even like, you know, if we went out to like McDonald's or uh-huh. something. Um, so... The amazing thing about my childhood is that, you know, we lived in a rural area and in, you know, these small mobile homes. And I really got to enjoy that, you know, the the, the neighborhood, but it wasn't as social and connected. Um, but I, I did enjoy the openness of like being outdoors in nature, like with, you know, wooded, wooded areas or fields. Um, and I actually went to pick blueberries with my with my parents during the summer when I was off from school. Yeah. So uh, growing up, I I look back at it now, and I would have never guessed that I was an undocumented child. Interesting. Yeah. Um, because I had my parents provided all the necessities for me. I had you know clothing. I had food. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a school. I went on the bus. Yeah, like yeah. all the normal things that you know an American child would do. The only thing was that um, there was a sense of fear at home, and I didn't understand it at that young young of an age because um, I would see it on the Spanish media uh-huh. channel or in the newspaper, uh, immigration this and immigration that, and yeah. I would be like, "Wow, like this is a big thing. I don't know what this is." And um, you could kind of feel that. I unease could feel and it, tension, yeah. Even though you didn't and know we what would, that was about, yeah. Sure, when we would um, drive, uh, I would sense my parents like fear driving. You know, if we were going to the store or we were, um, you know, going out of the state to visit my family in Texas, right. across the country, um, there was this always fear of law enforcement, and and there was like no trust, yeah. and um, and then uh, I. Uh, another thing was, you know, the reality is uh, families have to survive one way or another. And yeah. my my parents uh, ended up, you know, using, uh, like, working uh, and having different names. So that was really tough because I was so confused of, of well, why, yeah. you know, I call my parent this at home, but then they tell me don't, you know, out, like, if in, you come to work public, for some yeah. reason or if we're at a picnic or whatever, like if somebody calls, like, uh-huh. so that was really difficult. And I started to feel that, like, that shame kind uh-huh. of, like there's something wrong. Yeah. But I didn't find out um, really until, and, and I mean, the other the other fact was that knowing that my family and I couldn't return to Mexico. Right. So I was wondering, okay, what what is going on? So then at the age of... 16, um, I wanted to enroll in uh, driver's ed classes, and I was thinking about the future with college, and my parents told me that I was undocumented. And um, I, um, I it, it seemed to make sense to me. Like, yeah. So I started to learn Did, did that kind of click for you? Yeah, or, it I did. mean, it was... It, Tell us about it. It was disappointing, but yes. maybe kind of explain what you've been feeling earlier. Yeah, kind of the limitations that we had. And so then when I found that out, it, it just made sense. And then I started to learn this was in, you know, 2006 about the dreamers. And I was like, wow, I, 
I identify myself as a dreamer. And um, I attended my first, like, March at the right. age of 16. So I started to learn that immigration reform was a, was a huge need in our family and that we were waiting because actually in the year 2000, um, my uncle, who's a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. uh, petitioned for my mother, his sister. Um, so we were, we were told that we were going to wait maybe two decades. And to this day, my parents have been waiting wow. for that um, visa to become current. Um, and in the meantime, I became, I had, um, I have two younger brothers that are mm-hmm. American citizens. Okay. So, um, right now we're a mixed status family. Um, wow. because of those reasons. So, um, anyways, I ended up, you know, talking to my high school counselor and saying, you know, sharing this really personal thing and, um, asking for guidance. And at that time, high school, High schools, you know, in the area were not as informed about dreamers, um, about the needs, about the options, yeah. um, and basically said, I'm sorry, I, I, I wish I could help you, but I don't know how. Yeah. So anyways, um, I didn't get the opportunity to go to, to, go to college. And then uh, at, you know, later uh, when I was 22, I heard about, so I was, you know, I remember that there was this big announcement that President Obama made, and right. it was about the DACA program. Mm-hmm. And I remember just feeling like this huge sense of relief. And because, you know, two years earlier in 2010, the DREAM Act, or 2010, Ten or two thousand thirteen, probably sure. both. The yeah. Dream Act has come and gone <laughs> yes. uh, more times than we often would like. To exactly. Count. So at those different, yeah. you know, ages, it's like you get, you finally think you're going to get relief and you're going to get a better chance at life, and then it doesn't happen. And then Congress fails to get something exactly. done. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was just, just you know, kept this roller coaster, and finally, um, when there is this. Temporary program, I knew that I was going to apply and that I was going to qualify because I had a clean record. You yeah. know, I went to school. I learned, I knew the language. Tell us about the requirements to enter into the DACA program. Yeah. So, um, I, the requirements is that you, you know, had to come to the United States as a child. Right. Um, there's a certain time period and you had to be a, a, of age, um, I believe, like, at least 16 years old. Um, So then uh, at the time I was 22. And so I had lived most of my life, you know, um, that way. And, and then you had to have provided proof of your education. So like either like a high school diploma or a GED or enrolled in in a college. And then you had to provide proof of like you're living, like that you actually lived in the country for all these times that you claim that you lived. Right. So it was seriously. Was it hard to pull that documentation together? It is. It can be I very can, I hard. I can only imagine. Yeah. It can be very hard to document your life for the past Especially like, 10 years. Especially when you were a kid and not necessarily yes. being mindful of keeping yes. records of Exactly. Stuff, right? So yeah, all like the school records, uh, med- any medical records, any anything, and even like a record that proved you were here on this day. Right. So um, it was this huge packet and a lot yeah. of like, you know, I, I actually went to like a, 
of uh, session on like the first session that they had on DACA, like, uh-huh. hey, this is what you need to do to get ready to apply. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I. So at that time, you're 22, applying for the DACA program. You know, mm-hmm. it's a temporary thing. Mm-hmm. You've seen legislative solutions come and go. Did you have the sense that the DACA thing was risky? I mean, you're kind of sticking your hand up and saying, hey, guys, I'm here. I did. Yeah, it was very nerve wracking because you had to provide, you know, like your home address, your telephone number. Uh You had to provide information of how you came into the country, you know, whether it was you know, the legal way or the Mm -hmm. illegal way. You had to provide information of like your, at that time I was already, I, you know, was married. I had just gotten married Uh and I had my own, you know, home, but I had to provide the home address where I lived before for the past five years. So that included where my family lived and I was exposing that. And then I had to tell like my employers as well, like, Hey, I'm going through this process. And uh, on top of that, I'm coming up with the money, which is like over, it's like $450, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it was a really nerve wracking process to like, not exactly cheap for someone who uh, has a high school diploma and, mm-hmm, n- mm-hmm. and not many other job prospects. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Um, so it was a sacrifice. Um, and then um, finally submitting everything, um, trusting that it's going to get into the right hands and be reviewed. And you're just having this waiting period, um, you know, where you're like, I'm going to get something in the mail. Yeah. And, and then... Um, I think the scariest part was actually getting because you have to get your fingerprints right. checked, um, your record. Yeah, yeah. So that was the scariest part for me because yeah, yeah. they're not so friendly sometimes. Um, so um, yeah. And finally, when I got when I got the notification that I was approved, that the first time, and that um, when I got my social security card and uh-huh. my work permit, it was like the most amazing thing in the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for sharing that story. We'll probably have more conversation. I want to pivot to Elisa mm-hmm. and get to know a little bit about Elisa. Uh, Vanessa, you said you grew up in Michigan, but we also have a Southerner here. <laughs> and uh, we're going to get to know Elisa, who grew up where? I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh-huh. Um, and I was brought to the United States when I was eight months old from Mexico. Uh It was my mother and my brother, and my dad was already here in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, we illegally crossed the border. And um, like I was telling a lot of politicians that we met today, um, we came today and this week um, with the Christian Dreamer fly-in. So we were um, coming and talking to politicians advocating as dreamers, but also advocating Uh as Christian dreamers. And so I was telling them um, yesterday when we met with them um, that when we came here and when we settled in Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, one of the biggest things that I remember is that the church and um, specifically the Southern Baptist Church, Uh they equipped us and equipped my parents to find housing and to raise kids and to learn English. And so they... They knew that we came here illegally, and they knew that we didn't follow the law by doing that, but they also knew that they had two kids that uh-huh. had no n- no 
you know, clue what was going on. And so, um, they looked, they didn't look past that, but they, they said, okay, now this is how we need to do things the right way, the way that God wants us to do things. Um, and the appropriate role for the church, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, dialogue and, Uh you know, not rescuing you from that sin, but equipping you to move forward. And, um, so I actually did not know that I was undocumented until middle school. And um, my brother, um, DACA had just came out, and my brother was a senior in high school. And um, I do remember just like Vanessa, um, like whenever we were driving, um, it was super scary. Like there was definitely fear um, that we were going to get stopped by the police or um, that my parents were going to be taken. And I didn't know that until now. I knew the fear, but I didn't understand yeah, did, like, did that sen- my parents were going to be Did you sense taken. that kind of anxiety too? Yeah, like for Vanessa sure. Did? Yeah. yeah. And I think my brother knew a lot earlier than I did. And I think my parents were really just like shielding me from that because I was a kid. Like they yeah. wanted me to just enjoy life sure. and not be in fear. And so, um, yeah, when my brother was a senior in high school, um, he was really worried that he wasn't going to be able to go to college and um, pursue um, his dream of going to college. Because I think for all of us, um, when we come here um, from different countries, that's what our parents push. And those are the values that my parents um really gained from the church is um, the value of hard work and um and going to school and that that's just what they learned and mm-hmm. how they equipped us and so um those values they instilled in us and so my brother um thankfully because of DACA went to um North Greenville University um yeah. they're a Christian university yeah. and um, I, th- I think we've had an intern here a couple years ago from North Greenville. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so North Greenville, since we don't get federal or state aid, it's a North Greenville is a private college. Right. And yeah. so what they did was give my brother a lot of the deserving um, scholarships, uh-huh. like private scholarships, because he had all A's and um, he played the violin. And so he practically went on a full ride. Um, my parents just had to pay a little bit. Sure. But um, North Greenville really um, saw the need that we had and gave my brother an opportunity to go to college. And so um, because my brother had applied for DACA, so I, I think I was like 13, 14. Um, so because my brother had applied for DACA and it like she said, it costs $450 plus what you have to pay your attorney. And so um, my parents kind of had to hold off on putting me through DACA because they had made that sacrifice and um, having jobs that paid under the table and less um, were, was, we didn't, we couldn't afford that. And so um, it wasn't until I was 16 that, um, and it's a process. Mm -hmm. So um, we applied when I was 15. So a year later, and um, I remember that, I think that, like Vanessa said, was when the weight started to hit in. Like, even though um, I knew that DACA was coming for me and it, you know, I was waiting for that in the mail, um, everybody else was getting their permits and they were able to drive. Yeah. And um, I was just kind of like, mm, everyone's like, why aren't you getting your permit? And I was like, that kind of stinks for a 16 year old. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I couldn't do what a regular 16 year old was doing at the time. Right. And so, um, but thankfully because of DACA, um, I was able to get my driver's license and I'm currently a sophomore at Converse College. Uh-huh. And, um, 
when I am working right now at a nonprofit called Urban Hope, okay. and our mission is to connect Spartanburg youth and their families to Christ through our three different programs. And so our mission is solely to um, bring kids who live in the inner city and low-income families and broken families to Christ. But um, our mission is also to, um, obviously, we know that um, Christ fulfills, like, that need in our life and it brings purpose into our life. So now we want them um, to run to their purpose. And so like whatever talent it is, we want to equip them to be able to do that um, and to get an education. And so um, that's one of the biggest things um, that's different for me and coming this week was so refreshing as a Christian dreamer Uh was that um, for many of us, the church played a huge role. Um, I remember when I was in middle school and had just found out um, that was undocumented. That's when I um, accepted Christ into my heart. And it was a personal thing. Now Um, I remember that my parents had to tell the church members, you know, what was going on because we had just moved to a new church. Uh Um, and they were so open about it and completely looked past that. And they saw me as a human being. And that was so refreshing for mm-hmm. me because no, no one else saw me like that. And yeah. so the church was like, you're just our sister in Christ. Yeah. And Praise you're God. 16 years old. And, you know, we're going to do whatever we can um, for you to pursue your dreams and whatever God's calling is in your life. And so... um yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things for me um, that's different when you're a Christian dreamer is that um, this is all temporary. Like it says in First Peter, this suffering that we face is completely temporary compared to the eternal joy that we're going to feel at the end. Wow. Mm-hmm. I can't say any of this better than either of you. This is, yeah. uh, this is remarkable. Gosh, uh, I know you guys are uh, pressed for time. I, I want to get you guys out the door to your, to your flights. Um, uh, wow. So glad you've taken the time mm-hmm. uh, to be with us uh, today and share your stories. I understand this was your first time doing this kind of a uh, government uh, relations advocacy kind of thing. Tell yes. us a bit about uh, what was that like for you? Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I'll, and I'll uh, ask a follow-up. Okay. Um, so for me, it was really nerve-wracking to uh-huh. come to D.C. and exciting. Um, so I've been doing advocacy work um, as far as like sharing my story for the past two years now. Uh-huh. And um, I've been on the radio um, back in my hometown. I've been in articles, and, you know. And uh, so actually coming to D.C., I imagined it like to be really intimidating uh-huh. and scary and um I just felt like I was just going to really put myself out there even uh, more. Yeah. Um, but knowing that there was a group of fellow dreamers um, really like encouraged me to, you know, step out and make, you know, having to make that sacrifice of saying, I'm going to take time off my work schedule of, of away from my family. I'm right. going to travel um, because I believe not only in myself, um, but because I believe in the dreamer community and I was just, you know, happy to have the opportunity. Um, so actually going through yesterday, we had, um, you know, between the two groups, 13 actual congressional meetings Wow! and like, you know, podcasts, right. another podcast and a, a Facebook live video. So they, it they was schedule your days just kind of back to back. Yes. Like so right? it was jam packed. Um, but I was so encouraged by the faith of um the dreamers and their stories that um like 
I, I miss everyone already. <laughs> like it's hard yeah. to go back yeah, home yeah. because in my community back home, there isn't um, like another dreamer that I can like, that can walk with me in uh, this journey. Sure, yeah. And uh, yeah, so, so that is to me, I'm a very relational, you know, person. So this experience has been very positive and uh-huh. actually speaking with like the congressmen going to the different meetings. Um, I felt confident because I wasn't, you know, alone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elisa, what was this experience like for you? Yeah. So this was my first time as well. And I actually was really quiet about being a DACA recipient because one, because of my Southern accent, um, <laughs> no. a lot of people do not even think that I'm Mexican. And so, um, I just kind of kept a low profile about it. Like, obviously, my close friends knew. And then um, because of my last name, people obviously knew I was Mexican, but they didn't know I was undocumented and didn't know I was a um, DACA recipient. Uh And so um, it wasn't until Trump made his announcement to end DACA that I remember um, I had read it in class or read his tweet in class. And um, I knew that I couldn't, like, break down right there because, mm. like, life still goes on for us. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, like, we can't be paralyzed by fear. And so um, I remember, like, walking out to the courtyard, and I called my mom, and she was like, God has a plan for this. And I think that's what, like I keep saying, like, that's the hope for Christian dreamers that we have. Um, and so— as soon as I got off the phone, I was like, God, like, please give me platforms to speak on on your behalf. So it not being like just me, my story as a dreamer, but my story as a Christian dreamer. And so um, after that, I was asked to speak at a DACA panel at Converse and then a DACA panel at Wofford College. And I've been able to really um, educate my church about it because a lot of my church members did not really know. They just misconceptions yeah. of what yeah, it yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And so um, whenever it make, it I got— It makes a difference when uh, you actually know someone. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's what everybody was saying. They were like, wow, you're—like, that's insane. And I was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and so um, the— The opportunity to come here was definitely God answering my prayers um, to come as a Christian platform. And so when we came, um, it was it was discouraging at times. And every 30 minutes we had a meeting and um, we really made sure to um, pray for whoever we were meeting with. Uh And um, I think that made a difference, too, for them to see something different, not to see um, dreamers like yelling at them or protesting, but, but seeing it as like kind and, um, wanting to pray for them and wanting to love on them. And so, um, yeah, so it's been really different for me to be here and it's, it's definitely like prayers of the church and prayers of the college ministry that I'm in, um, that have helped me really like in times that it's been discouraging when we get out of meetings to really just be like, once again, the verse in first Peter, like we can rejoice because we have confidence in Christ and that's what we rejoice in, not confidence in anything else. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about a great many other things uh, and get to know you better. I do want to uh, point out, uh, Vanessa, you mentioned before we started recording that you got a biblical studies degree or went and pursued some biblical mm-hmm. studies. Yeah. So there is a program through my church, um, which is actually the broader program through the International School of Ministry. Uh-huh. And at my church, we called it the Leaders for Christ Training Center. And that was for me the, the uh, again, that place of hope because I, because of my undocumented status, I, I studied a year at community college, paid, paid it out of my pocket. 
Um, but then I went through this course and was able to get a diploma um, in biblical studies. Um, and the church as well has been like this place of refuge for me. Um, yeah. Well, we need to get you ladies out the door to catch your flight. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to share your stories with our listeners. And uh, we wish you Godspeed as you return home. And uh, our prayers are with you both. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. This has been Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. To emphasize, the streamer issue is not a tangential issue for the ERLC. It's an unresolved issue that hits all our policy themes, including human dignity, family, and justice. Show notes for this episode are available at ERLC.com. Special thanks to Gary Lancaster for editing the audio and to Marie Dell for getting this posted online. Additional podcasts and other resources to equip you and your church are available at ERLC.com.